As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Life, but not as we know it. A talk by Father Dave Callahan. So the title of this talk was basically, you know, it's, it's life, but not as we know it. Um, how do we understand the difference between Christianity and secularism? So we're living in a secular age. I hope you're aware of that. Um, you know, we are no longer in Christendom anymore. Okay, like it's, it's a whole different world to what existed when this building was built. You know, this, I believe, was the old novitiate for the, the Sisters of Our Lady of the Sacred Heart. Built in a whole different era. Um, and that was probably only 50 years ago. Um, the world has changed dramatically. Um, in the space of your lifetime, the world has changed exponentially. Um, you know, we're only, I think, just 30 years ago now was the start of the internet. Um, you guys have never experienced a world without the internet. That's amazing. It makes me feel very old. I'm only 40. <laughs> um, I remember when it was a brand new thing and everyone was like, oh, wow. Um, but I suppose just to kind of paint you a bit of a picture. So we, we hear a lot about this thing called secularism. Um, what actually is it? The, the actual word, um, it, it kind of comes from the Latin word for time. Um, if you ever hear sort of people praying in Latin or singing in Latin, you'll often hear, you know, secularum, secularum. You know, like the, the, the word comes in kind of whenever we say like forever and ever, you know, or forever lasting. Um, when we talk about a secular world, I mean, it's, it's always hard to define complex philosophical concepts, but in, in a sense, we're talking about a world that is time limited, you know, whereas the Christian world is focused on eternity and we see everything in light of eternity. This is, I suppose, is a world which only sees the now. Um, it's only focused on the present. And, and that changes everything, really. Um, so, give you a quick, very quick understanding of where this came from. Um, you know, people will often talk about secularism as like an evil thing. Christians will often talk about it that way. <laughs> um, you know, something to be worried about, something to be scared of. In some strange way, we created it. Um, go back to the early church and Christians were referred to as atheists. I'm not whether you're aware of that. Uh, because it was a world that believed in the gods. You know, it was a very spiritual world where there was a God for everything. And the Christians rejected that. We basically said there's only one God uh, and we have no intention of worshipping all your other gods. And as a result, uh, we were regarded as atheists and, and the early Christians were killed because of that, uh, because they refused to worship. So in a sense, that was like the beginnings of where we burst the bubble of a world which was super spiritual. Um, now, obviously, it was, it was with the intention of actually bringing about the real truth. As you start to go through history, obviously, the, the world became Christian. Um, you get up to the time of the Middle Ages, around the time of the Renaissance, and kind of the strange thing starts to happen philosophically where the, the, the word renaissance in French basically means like revival. 
You know, so if you ever hear Protestants talking about, you know, they, they want a revival, um, it's like, let, let's return back to the roots, let's return back to where things were good. And the Renaissance basically meant that. Um, but they weren't talking about Christianity, they were talking about the Greek culture. In a sense, they were, they were rediscovering the early Greek philosophers and people who said, look, there is no God, it's all atoms, um, and so therefore the world should just be about pleasure. And so they looked back at that and they said, well, look, this is like the hidden scripture almost, like, like this was the bit we've lost. And so we need to create a revival back to when the world was good. And so what you end up with is this attitude that originally the world was good and then Christianity corrupted it with all of its morality. That's, it sounds crazy to us, doesn't it? But it's, that, that's pretty much the attitude of our modern secular world. Now, that then built and built slowly. You, have, you go through the French Revolution, uh, the time of the Enlightenment, and in, in a sense, this attitude becomes more and more developed and hardened into our world um, without getting lost in history because we could go into a whole week, we could spend a whole weekend talking about this. But you, you basically end up with a bunch of philosophers who almost make this now the, the doctrine of the world. Um, so you've got someone like Sigmund Freud who comes out and he says... You know, all these people are coming to him filled with anxiety because they're trying to work out what the meaning of life is. And so he says, well, look, to get rid of anxiety, get rid of the meaning of life. Um, and so you should just simply live for pleasure. And, and this was kind of his whole thing, that society should be focus all of its energy and intention on yielding to pleasure. Um, there is no meaning. If someone comes to you as a psychologist, wondering what the meaning of life is, it's a sign that they're mentally ill, was basically what he said. Um, so this now kind of gets hardwired into our culture. Um, we are basically living in a Freudian world. Um, you know, any movie, any bit of media you ever watch is promoting his philosophy. It's all about pleasure. That's all you live for. Um, another part of this was actually a, a real reaction to the whole modernist, rational side of the world. So a big part of the French Revolution and the Enlightenment was that reason would save us. Um, you know, so at the end of the French Revolution, they convert the Notre Dame Cathedral into a temple dedicated to the goddess of reason. Um, the whole of their country was focused on worshipping reason. And they believed that the human intellect would save them go through the next couple of generations and that human reason has created a couple of hundred years of bloodshed. Um, Europe has fallen into endless warfare. And so you get up to the late 1900s and the young people are basically saying, well, we don't care less about your reason. <laughs> like your reason has simply caused misery. And so all we want is pleasure. We don't want to think. We don't want to know the truth. We just want to live for now. Um, and so you have the beginnings of things like uh, German Romanticism as a movement where, in a sense, this was almost like the hippie movement, but back in the early 1900s. Uh, young people running through the forest without shoes on, long hair, playing guitars, climbing trees. Um, it, it was really purely about sexual liberty. Um, you know, we don't want to have to live for any purpose, any, any meaning. 
let's just enjoy the moment and be artistic and free and beautiful and hopefully the world will become a better place. Um, but it didn't, again. Um, uh, Hitler worked out a way to twist that movement into becoming the Hitler Youth and it lived disastrously ever after. Um, but what you kind of see is this, this sense of the world, the world has a sense of the paradise we were made for. I think that's probably the way to explain it. Like, like deep within ourselves, there is a memory of eternity. And, and sometimes people talk about it almost being this idea of like the, well, there was one author called it the, the memory of a dethroned monarch. You know, so if you imagine someone had been grown up in a kingdom, you know, they were destined to inherit the throne, live in the lap of luxury, and then they were thrown out into the gutter. They would always have the memory of where they should have been. And so it's this idea that deep within the human soul, there is a memory of Eden. Like, like we remember a world where there was freedom and liberty and beauty and truth and pleasure. Um, but we're trying to now get that without God. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the heart of the whole secular philosophy. It's that we're looking for the kingdom without the king. We're looking for paradise, but without ever having to submit ourselves to God. Um, and so this is really where we find ourselves. Now, just to kind of develop the picture a bit more for you, we, we find ourselves in a really difficult position as Christians um, because we are very much living in a post-Christian world. Uh, Australia is officially known as a post-Christian country. But, but kind of what that means, if it, to, to try to explain it to you. Like, so in terms of doing mission, they talk about mission to a pre-Christian country. The danger is that if, if you're going to a country that has never experienced Christianity, the danger is that you're going to evangelize them into your own culture. Okay, so when the early missionaries went to the far places of the world, they were not only bringing Christianity, but they were also bringing the Western civilization. And it was hard for them to separate the two. Uh, and, and so there was a real danger of colonizing them. In a post-Christian world, when we go out to evangelize a post-Christian world, the danger is that we get colonized by the world. And so we end up in a situation where even though we're trying to bring the gospel and we're trying to be good Christians, we are constantly being infected by this philosophy. And it gets to the point where it's actually hard for us to separate Christianity from secularism. Uh, and then this is the world you guys are in. Um, and so I think this is where it's important to take a step back and say, well, where are we? What's, the, what's actually happening right now? Because... In some sense, you don't actually know what Christianity is, if I can say that. <laughs> it probably sounds a bit controversial. Um, none of us do. Like, like, we've all grown up in a church which is thoroughly immersed in a secular world. Um, it's the air we breathe. And, and we're not even conscious of the culture that's affected us. And that, that's the whole thing of culture, is that you can't understand a culture until you leave it. You know, so if you've ever traveled overseas, you probably suddenly realize, oh, we do things differently back home. <laughs> um, you never realized that when you were back home. 
Uh, it's only when you're suddenly in a different world you recognise it. And so, and so this is sort of the thing, that we are living Christianity, and I think particularly amongst a lot of young people today in the Catholic Church, there's almost a competition to see who can be the most Catholic. Um, you know, there's all sorts of battles between, you know, are you ultra-conservative or you're, you know, some sort of lefty progressive and all this. Like, people have so many arguments about this stuff, particularly at universities. Um, but in some sense, none of us really understand where we are. And, I, and I, once again, you don't necessarily have to agree with that, but I think this is where we actually need to step back and actually rediscover Christianity in a whole new way. Um, and, and I think the only way to really do that is by going back and reading history, um, almost in a sense stepping into a different world and understanding the difference between where we are now compared to where Christians were centuries ago. Um, just to jump back, so, so in terms of where are we here at this moment, um, secularism really kind of took off, say, in the 50s in the Western world um, as, as like an official thing which we were trying to impose. Um, at that point, I think particularly after the, the First and Second World War, there was a sense of saying, well, we need to create a world which is very open to pluralism. You know, we are open to difference. We can live together in harmony. Um, and then the world will be at peace. Um, and that worked for a while, a very, very short time. <laughs> um, I was, a lot of what I'm actually presenting to you here comes from a brilliant podcast called This Cultural Moment, if you want to look into it deeper. Um, and the, this guy, this guy Mark Sayers, who's done a lot of research into this, he talks about how there, there were a couple of key figures around the 50s who actually predicted the stages that secularism would go through. And they basically said, we will manage to live this beautiful pluralistic world only for a short time, because then we'll start to realize how all of our beliefs clash and we can't actually live in harmony together. Um, because what I want to do in my religion over here completely offends you and yours over there. And at that point, you're going to end up with saying, okay, let's, let's say there is no belief. Keep your belief private, only inside your own home. Um, in the public domain, we all act as though there is nothing, and then we can be at peace. However, what that does is it takes away all sense of religion, or faith, or worship from society. And the problem with that is that the human being is fundamentally made for worship. Uh, that it's, it's written into us. Like, like we need to be worshipping something. And, and what these guys back in the 50s predicted, they said eventually it'll get to a point where it starts to collapse in on itself because we will start to turn politics into religion. And at that point, it's going to go really bad really quickly. Um, now, that's pretty much where we find ourselves today. <laughs> um, it, it is actually quite fascinating to see where the world has gone, only in the last two years, really. Um, we've gone from where like, like it looked as though this whole secular movement was going to break through and become the dream that it hoped for. Um, you, you had... 
you know, these politicians around the world who are talking the language of unity and peace and hope, and it all sounded so wonderful. Whereas in the last two years, we've suddenly swung back to this sort of radical popularism, you know, and all around the world, you've got people getting into politics who really should never be allowed anywhere near politics. <laughs> um, you know, and everyone's now shaking their heads saying, how did that happen? You know, it was looking so good. Why did that just go bad? Um, but I suppose from a Christian perspective, we would say it makes perfect sense because as much as we would like to think that human beings are inherently rational, we're not. Um, you know, that, that need to be part of some sort of worship and, and, and that then becomes a tribalism um, where if I can't be part of a faith community, I need to be part of a political community. Uh, and then all of that fervor and zeal gets turned into hating the other person. Um, and so this is where you've now got this extremely polarized society. Um, and, and pretty much all around the Western world, every country has got the same thing. Um, to the point where it's now looking like you know, you've got you've got some of the most well-established countries falling apart. Um, you know, the stuff that's going on in England with Brexit is unheard of. <laughs> like, it's, it, it's like watching a train crash. Like, you're just like, how did this happen? You know, that the whole country is now paralyzed for years and they just can't work themselves out. Um, but in a sense, it's because we've created a vacuum. Like, like we've taken out religion, hoping that that would create the perfect world. You know, so go back to that idea of the Renaissance, this idea that originally the world was good, Christianity corrupted it. If we get rid of Christianity, we then go back to the perfect world. Um, I think what we're finding is it doesn't work. You know, the evidence isn't there. Um, now, I think for us that should actually be a really hope-filled thing, if I can say this. Um, there's a lot of people who look at our current state of the world, a lot of Christians, and they say it's all going to collapse. It's falling apart. And so our job as Christians is to sit back and just watch it burn, and then once it's collapsed to the ground, we'll go and rebuild it. Um, and people, you know, go back and talk about you know, when, when Europe collapsed at the fall of the Roman Empire and how the Benedictines pretty much rebuilt Europe. Um, it's a very simplistic view of history. Um, and I think if you go back and look at the fall of the Roman Empire, it was a bit more complicated than that. Um, but it also fails to understand all the history that's happened between then and now. Um, so just to give you a bit of an idea. So we, we often have this idea that Okay, you had like pagan world, pagan world, pagan world. Jesus comes, world gets converted. Everyone becomes Christian. And we all stay Christian until about the 1950s, and then it drops. <laughs> now, that, that's the way I think a lot of people think. Um, you know, and so, so people often talk about trying to get back to the good old days, you know, back in the 1950s or, you know, the early 1900s when everyone was Catholic. Um, the reality is it was actually more like a series of waves. And, and there is a lot of research into this to show that you, you've got this 
continual, you know, up and down, you know, where there are certain times where everyone is Catholic, you know, and the churches and the cathedrals are full. But then a couple of generations later, and they're almost empty. Um, like you go into the early, like around the sort of mid-1800s, and people were predicting the death of Christianity. Um, August Comte, you probably never heard of him, but he was a very significant philosopher who actually created like uh, churches all around the world devoted to human, human reason, like he was worshipping humanity. Um, he predicted that Christianity would be dead by the early 1900s uh, because there was good evidence, like, like the churches were emptying, everyone was leaving. Um, it didn't pick up again until the 1950s. You know? So if you look at the, the stats on church attendance, around 1950 was actually the peak. Like it was probably the highest ever. You know, and that's going back like centuries beforehand. Um, so even like in the US where they've got good records going back you know, 300 years or so, um, the, the 1950s was the high point. Prior to that, it was a bit hit and miss. Um, now a lot of that was coming as a reaction from the Second World War. People realized we need God. Um, and then they started making a lot of money and realized, oh, we don't need God. Um, and it changed again. <laughs> um, but I think that that's important to understand in terms of interpreting where we are now. Because I hear a lot of Catholics, but it's not only Catholics, but in all the other churches as well, this idea that it's all going to collapse pretty soon. And so we need to almost create, you know, like our Catholic version of a fallout bunker. Um, and just live it out, you know? We, we just make our family strong, our community strong, it'll all go to poop, and then we'll re rebuild it. Um, I think what that misses is the fact that we actually have a really important part to play in this current time. Um, that what we're seeing is the collapse of the secular world, or, or the cracks are forming very clearly around us. And we need to realize that this is our time to move in and give a different story. So instead of just taking the passive approach and say, wait till it burns and then we'll sit back and say, told you so, <laughs> um, we actually need to start to work out, well, okay, what actually is our Christian message and how does it speak into this current moment? Um, because, what, like I say, what we are seeing is the great dream, the great hope is falling apart. Um, this hope that the United Nations would create peace forever, it's fracturing, you know. Um, the hope that politics would be able to solve all the problems, it's falling apart. Um, e even the hope that we could somehow create a world where everyone could live in peace and harmony, uh, I think Twitter has proven that wrong pretty well. What it's revealing is the anger, the, the hopelessness, the depression, the anxiety. It's revealing that we can't live without God, that we actually need something else. Now, at this point, I think we need to stop and say, okay, well, the same thing's actually happening within the church. You know, there, in some sense, the church is falling apart. Um, and, and it's not only the Catholics. We're seeing this across a lot of the churches um, we're, we're the ones in the newspaper the most. But there is 
some serious stuff going on worldwide. Um, so how do we interpret that? How do we understand what's going on? Um, go back to this, this, guy, this guy, Mark Sayers, I was quoting. He, he goes back and says, okay, if we're looking for a Christian way to interpret this, go back and look at the Tower of Babel. So, as you know, the story in, in the book of Genesis where humanity basically said, we want to become God without God. We want to reach the heavens by our own strength, reason, power. Okay, and so we, we will build this tower which will make the, mean that we can reach the heavens. God doesn't allow that to happen. Okay, so as soon as people start to stand on human structures and human institutions, he comes in and he frustrates it. Not just because he's scared that we're going to take over his job, um, but because he understands how we were built. He knows that as human beings, we need to run on worship. Um, we can't run on self-worship. Um, and so he frustrates it. You know, he, so he, he made, makes it so they can't understand each other. They all speak different languages. And in a sense, what he's doing, he's, he's tearing down Babylon again and again. And you, you, you then see that repeated all the way through the Old Testament, where any time the people of Israel rely on their own human strength, he frustrates it, he tears it down, he allows it to get broken. Um, so this guy, Mark Sayers, would basically say, what we're seeing is almost like a Babylon moment, um, where we're seeing it in the secular world, We've tried to build this tower where by our own intellect and ingenuity, we can create the perfect world. Um, and what we're now seeing is that no one can talk to each other anymore. You know, we're all talking English, but no one's communicating. <laughs> um, no one's listening. And so you're starting to get all this fragmentation going on. But you're also seeing something of this in the church that... Once again, God loved Israel. Like, like he, that was his chosen people. Anytime Israel relied on human strength or human power, he would allow it to be torn down. You know, and very often his, his punishment was extreme. You, know, you look at the exile into Babylon, that was horrendous. I don't know if you, you know the history very well, but it was, it was not nice. And so what this guy basically says is what we're seeing is the same sort of purification going on in the church where God is calling us back to real worship, They're calling us back to what it actually means to be a Christian. You know, so where we have allowed ourselves to be colonised by this secular mindset, allow all that to be stripped away. You know, where we have relied on strength and power and the strength of our institutions to come back to being really humble. You know, to come back to real poverty, you know, to re real poverty of spirit where we say, we can't do this. You know, we have nothing. We can't save the world. We need God. We need to be on our knees crying out for help. That's pretty much where we are. <laughs> and so I think when we say, okay, what actually is Christianity? I think we need to look at it in light of that, uh, that God is doing a work with us to, to actually bring us back home. <clears throat> To, to rediscover the heart of Christianity. Now, as I was talking about the, you know, the Renaissance being like a revival, down through the history, Christians have always gone back and, and gone, looked back at the early church and said, well, that's the point we need to get back to. Um, 
not just in terms of the physical experience of it, but, but like the, the real heart of it. Like, like how did the early Christians think? How did they understand themselves in the world? How did they understand themselves before God? And I think more and more that's what we've got to rediscover. Um, I, I don't know whether you ever go back and read any stuff about the early church. You should do. If you're doing this in your chaplaincy, give them some early documents. Um, but what you see is real radical discipleship. Um, if you're looking for something to read, have a look at Ignatius of Antioch, his letter to the Romans. Just Google that. That will be some nice bedtime reading for you. Um, you may not get to sleep for a while afterwards. Because um, it, it's basically, Ignatius of Antioch, the, the, this is second-generation Christianity. So the, the, the bishops at that time were discipled by the apostles. Uh, that's about as early as you can get. And Ignatius is on his way to Rome to be fed to the lions, and he knows it. And his biggest concern, his biggest anxiety is that, is that the Christians in Rome are going to try and rescue him. And he's saying, please don't, because only now do I become a Christian. You know, Up until now, I've been a Christian by name, but on the day that that lion eats me, I will become a Christian in fact. Um, and he's almost like pleading with them, saying, let me be eaten. <laughs> You've got to read it. It's, it's one of the best examples of Christian literature ever. Um, like, like he actually says, like, if I get into the Colosseum and they're not hungry, I'm going to force myself on them so that they actually eat me. <laughs> um, but you, you read that and you sit back and say, what were they doing? You know, like, what was their understanding of Christianity? Because for us, like I say, we've been colonised by this secular world, a world which says that it's all about pleasure, it's all about you, and the most important thing is your identity. Um, our whole understanding of Christianity has become influenced by that. Um, so often, because I, I, I love history, and very often I'll, I'll talk to young people about the experience of the early church, and you see this look of horror in their faces like, that can't be good. Surely God doesn't like that. Um, that's not psychologically healthy. <laughs> um, and it fascinates me because what you're seeing there is this clash of cultures. You know, because these are... These are Christians who are you know, working in mission and doing catechesis, all the stuff that you guys are doing. But when they actually experience something of what the early church lived, it's, it's almost like looking at a different religion. Um, because we have been so thoroughly influenced by the world we're in. Now, a simple way to explain this is the difference between the, Christianity, the Christian understanding of salvation and the secular understanding of salvation. And I think if I explain this, you might get an idea of the contrast. Christianity would basically say, we started in the Garden of Eden, where we lived in relationship with God. There was the fall. Okay, we sinned. And so we now live in a world of sin, where we are rejecting God. And so therefore, we need salvation. And a key part of salvation is to now live for other people. Basically, for me to lose myself, to die. As Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow. So, so the central to the Christian understanding of life is for us to lose ourselves. Secularism has its own version of salvation, which is that 
So for us, where we start in the Garden of Eden, they would basically say that that Eden experience is that place of childhood innocence. You know, when you were two or three years old and you just ran naked through the fields and everyone loved you and thought you were cute, um, that, that place of absolute innocence. You then also have a, a, an experience of a fall, which is some sort of childhood trauma, which steals that innocence from you. You then have the secular version of sin, which is anything which takes you away from that childhood innocence and freedom. And basically, commitment is what that is. Um, any sort of commitment becomes sin because you can't do what you want to do. You know, you're locked into a job for the next 30 years. That's horrible. You know, you're married. That's horrible. Like, you can't now do what you want to do and be what you want to be. But then liberation or salvation in the secular mindset comes from finding yourself. You know, so this is where all the advertising is, you know, I, I got lost so I could find myself. I, I travelled overseas and did this Contiki tour and I found myself. Uh, basically, I, I reclaim my childhood innocence where I realise that it's all about me. You know, and so life in the secular mindset is all about you. You are the centre of the universe. It's all about you. And it's all about finding yourself. You know, so, so this is why people would actively promote a midlife crisis where you abandon your, your wife and your children and you go off and live on the other side of the world. They would say, good for you. You're finding yourself. Um, it happens. <laughs> it's, it's a, you know. Um, but, but what you've got there is, is a very stark contrast. Um, now... We, we understand the Christian salvation schema. We, we believe that intellectually. But a lot of the time, we're actually living the secular salvation schema. And, and this is the real danger that amongst Catholics, you've got a lot of people who will go to church, will be doing missionary work, they'll be giving talks about God's love. But really deep at the heart of themselves, they are living... The, the, the secular version of salvation. Um, I need me time, you know. I, I, I need my time to go over here and do this thing. I, I need to use all my finances and all my time to travel because it's, it's for me. Um, and, and this is kind of the key point, I think, where we have been colonised. You know, we, we've been taken over by this way of thinking. Um, and so to present to someone the idea that to be a Christian means absolute radical commitment. Like if I was to say that to you, like, like for you as a Christian means to give absolutely every part of your whole being to Christ, to devote your time, your energy, your sexuality, your finances, everything. Every decision you make should be made with other people in mind first. Who now feels sick in the stomach when you think about that? <laughs> I'm sure that inside of you there's something that just goes... <clears throat> I came to the wrong retreat. <laughs> but, but what you're experiencing right there is a clash of cultures inside of you. Okay, like what you're experiencing right there is the part of us which has actually believed the story. You know, because it's come in every song, every movie, everything has told us that life is to be found by living for you. 
and having endless freedom, endless opportunity, keep the options open all the time. Whereas Christianity is about sell everything. You know, give everything. It's that treasure in the field or the pearl of great price. You know, absolute madness. You know, like I often think about that parable of the, the man who finds the treasure in the field and then goes and sells everything so he can buy the field. And you sort of assume he must have sold his shovel as well. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> it's, it's a reckless decision. It's like, you know, you commit yourself to something and you have no idea you're actually going get to the, get the fruit of it in this life. But, but you commit to it anyway. Um, you commit to it knowing that maybe no one's ever going to know about what you do. Um, you know, because we are in the Instagram generation where people are happy to go and do great things for God as long as I can post it on social media and get lots of likes. Um, once again, it's all about me. Um, I'll go do this mission trip. I'll go and help this poor person and get a selfie at the same time. Um, but who would dare to hear the word of God and respond radically and then die forgotten? You know, I don't know if you've ever heard the story of uh, Charles de Foucault. Um, I think he's a blessed now. He may have been canonized, I forget. Um, basically, this guy, uh, early 1900s, he was in the French Foreign Legion in North Africa. He was living a pretty bad life, um, has a massive conversion, and wants to now live the rest of his life in penance, really, for the sins he'd committed while he was in the Foreign Legion. Um, feels called to live, well, he basically feels God put this really big call on him saying, I want you to start a religious order which is going to transform the world, um, living the life of Nazareth. So as the Holy Family lived in Nazareth, that's the, basically the model of your life. And so he actually goes and he starts to live in the Holy Land and then it doesn't quite work out for him, so he moves to the Sahara Desert and he's working amongst the Tuareg people in the Sahara. And he's, he's believing the call of God. You know, he's given absolutely everything. He believes that if God wants him to start a religious order, people are going to come. And he travels back to France a number of times, trying to drum up vocations, and nothing happens. You know, occasionally one person would come and join him, but his life is so extreme that normally they would run away in the middle of the night and never be seen again. Um, and so he spends the whole of his life just alone, unknown by anybody, thinking, I've achieved nothing. Okay, I was faithful to the calling and I've got nothing to show for it. He ends up being killed by the people he was working for. Um, he wasn't even particularly martyred. They just killed him randomly one day. Um, after he died, his story got out. And I think today there are three or four different religious orders based on his rule all around the world. Um, did he get any credit for it during his lifetime? No. Did he enjoy pleasure? No. <laughs> um, I, I, I use that story because it's a bit of an extreme example, but I think it, it shows something of what, what it means to follow Christ. Like, I'm not following Christ for my sake. I'm not following Christ to get kudos or credit. Um, I'm following because he died for me. You know, he gave his life for me, and so in gratitude, I give my life for him. End of story. If he wants to make anything out of that, that's, that's up to him. You know, if he wants that to be known by anybody, then good for him. 
It's not about me. Um, it's about rediscovering what it means to really give our whole being to Christ. Um, and I think that's become a really rare thing. Um, I, I do a lot of work, obviously, with young people, um, talk to a lot of young men in terms of vocation, and it fascinates me how many men look at vocation through that secular lens of how is this going to be good for me? You know, I, I want to do something which is going to make me look good. Now, now they don't consciously say that. They, they would be horrified if I challenged them on that. But the way you hear them talking, you sort of realise, yeah, no, you, you're not actually fully surrendered to Christ. Like you're, you're really in this for yourself. Um, there, there's something of that radical calling which says, I give everything and I, and I don't care what the consequences are. Um, like I say, that is extremely challenging in our modern world. I don't expect you to hear that and want to suddenly jump into it. Um, but I think I say this simply as a challenge to say, go back and rediscover something of what the early church lived, if you can. I mean, you guys have got the whole world at your fingertips on your phone. Um, look up something decent on Google for a change. And actually say, yeah, early church documents. <laughs> um, you know, lives of the early martyrs. Um, you use it to actually educate yourself because it's all there. Um, allow yourself to be deeply challenged by that. Um, and I think what you might find is that a couple of things. It'll disturb you greatly. Um, it will make you start to see the world in a very different way. Uh, it'll make you start to see where real joy is to be found. Um, you know, when you start to realise that we were made to be in relationship with Christ and that's it. You know, like our joy comes from that relationship. That's not a secondary thing. That's not an add-on. That is it, okay? And so even if that means going to the cross, there upon the cross I'm closer to Christ than I ever will be anywhere else. And there is my joy. You know, that, that, that's the only way you can understand the writings of some of the saints. You know, like when Francis of Assisi has his famous story about perfect joy. You've heard that story? You know, where he's talking to one of his brothers one night and he's saying, you know, what is perfect joy? And he's like, I don't know. You tell me. He's like, you know, if, if all the world became Christian and decided to, you know, become Catholic, that would not be perfect joy. He's like, okay, so what is then? So, well, you know, if, if we're all made bishops and everyone sort of decided to follow the one true church and... You know, all the politicians came and bowed down before the Pope. That would not be perfect joy. And he goes through example after example, and finally this brother's like, well, what is perfect joy then? And Francis says, well, you know, it's when after a long day walking, hungry, cold, in the rain, we come to one of our friaries, one of our places where the brothers are living, and we knock on the door and we say, we've come home, let us in. And they slam the door in our face saying, you're not our brothers, you're just a bunch of brigands coming to steal from us. And so we knock on the door again and we say, no, no, we're genuinely, genuinely your brothers, let us in. And they come out with a big club and they start beating us and throw us into the gutter. That would be perfect joy. <laughs> and you're like, Francis, you're a lunatic. <laughs> um, so often like, we, we read stuff like that in the saints and we shake our heads and think, ah, not for me, buddy. I'm not going to do that. 
Um, I'm sure it makes sense in some nice little pious world, but it doesn't make sense to me. Um, but the whole thing is they, they were living in a different world to us. And I think this is what we've got to realise, that they were living in a world where commitment was not a sin. Commitment was actually joy. Um, you know, and the more radical the commitment, the more radical the joy. You know, so if you could say, I'm going to follow Christ even if the whole church hates me, you know, even if my own brothers hate me, I'm going to still follow Christ. You know, because all I want is to be united with him. And if he is rejected and despised, then I want to be rejected and despised. You know, that, that, that's, that's Ignatius Loyola, you know. Ignatius was basically saying, like, in traditional countries, you can never stand above the king. You know, so if the king sits down, you've got to squat down lower. You know, so he says, well, look, if, if our king is upon the cross, if our king is poor, if our king is being spat upon, how can I dare to be treated better than him? You know, I should be lower. I should be treated worse than him. That's the world they came from. Um, that, that's, that's the way that the early church was thinking. For us, it's a, it's a different religion almost because we're coming from this idea where Christianity is a lifestyle choice. Christianity is something which is going to make my life even better than it already is. Um, and so we need to rediscover. You know, and I think this is something what I want to say that you have only discovered a fraction of what Christianity is so far. Um, the really good stuff, you haven't even got close to it um, because you're too scared. <laughs> but don't be afraid. You know, going back to that quote by Benedict, the world wants you to be comfortable. You are not made for comfort. You are made for greatness. Okay, so we need to be, we need to have the courage to step away from a bit of that comfort long enough to discover that secret treasure, like that hidden wisdom, which is what Christ was actually giving us. That was Father Dave Callahan with Life But Not As We Know It. This talk was recorded as part of the UTS Catholic Society Beginning of Year Retreat. To find out more about the Catholic Society at your local university, visit unicatholics.org.au. And for more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.